My name is Steve, and I am the senior pastor here. So it's good to be here in this room together. I heard you singing loudly. I even heard you guys online singing loudly. So good to be here. Renew our spirits. Uh, Right now, we are in a sermon series that we have called Hidden Figure because we are looking at the story of Esther in the Old Testament. It's a story that's basically about her rise from obscurity to the very throne of the superpower and is a for their own reversal of fortunes. And she did it with the support of her adoptive father and father named Mordecai. But for all of her heroism and courage that we have been seeing and watching, good things actually only come about because God is there. And he is this truest hidden figure behind the scenes to the point that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't even mention God. And so in many ways, Esther lives or, or having incredible, she has to live by faith that God is always working for her good, always accomplishing his purposes, even in the absence of him undeniably and obviously showing up. And working is just what we've seen God do in Esther's story, providentially moving the likes of King Ahasuerus Uh, to marry Esther and to even have a soft spot for her. God even moves behind the scenes of the king's prideful and ego-driven prime minister, Haman, uh, who schemes and manipulates the king into giving an edict to wipe out all of the Jewish people in the empire, all because Haman had felt slighted by Mordecai. And last week, Bronwyn showed us how Esther was gathering herself up to act with courage, and to do something about this edict with Mordecai's help. Bronwyn left us with what she called a cliffhanger of being in this messy middle where they know they have to do something about this without knowing how it's exactly going to turn out for them. And they're just clinging to God's promises to be fulfilled. So in a manner of speaking, it's safe to say right now as we pick up this story in the messy middle, Mordecai and Esther are kind of having a bad day right? Uh, Scrambling for what to do in the face of impossible odds to save their own lives and their own necks, but also to do something for their people's lives as well. For me, it calls to mind one of the most memorable books from my childhood, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. The height of fine literature, right? Um, Page after page details while while Alexander why Alexander is having such a bad day. And it's not just a bad day, it's really bad, right? It's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. If you remember, he begins by waking up and he finds gum in his hair. And then he trips on his skateboard as he goes to, as he got out of bed, and he drops his sweater into the bathroom sinks running water. And then at breakfast, you know, Two other brothers found prizes in their cereal box, and all Alexander found was cereal. And so he, all he wants to do is move to Australia to get away from it all, right? But unfortunately, he has to go to school, so he joins a carpool, and he's forced to sit in the middle of the back seat. Everyone else has a window seat except for Alexander, and even when his cries of getting car sick, they fall on deaf ears. And at school, 
at school. The teacher didn't like his picture of an invisible castle. He sang too loud during the singing time. He left 16 out of the, during the counting time. And to boot, Paul demoted him from his first best friend to his third best friend. Right? Everyone at lunch, they got a dessert. Except, can you guess? Alexander. And after school, mom takes the kids to the dentist, which is bad enough, right? But only Alexander is the one who has a cavity. And so it goes on, and it just rolls on and on and on for Alexander, who even feels like his complaints are just bouncing off the wall. And finally, you know, he has to, at dinner, he has to eat lima beans, and everyone hates lima beans, right? His bath before bed was too hot. Uh, he got soap in his eyes. For bedtime, he has to wear the pajamas that he hates. And then the cat, the cat, chooses to sleep with the other brother, and not Alexander. And so finally, at the end of the day, Alexander complains one last time to the one lone person who will listen to him, his mother, that this is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, because who could argue with that? And so all his mother could do was offer a little perspective, and she just said, some days are like that, even in Australia. Right? Do you ever have Days like that, with misfortune, missteps, or just missing out? Have you ever had those days stretch into weeks, months, whole seasons of your life? Then we would do well to tune our ears into Esther and Mordecai's story this morning, because they are having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, and it's through no fault of their own. And this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, it involves incredible danger that they have to face, menacing threats to their life, and super high stakes for their own people. And so they are probably thinking and feeling and asking themselves many of the same things that you and I do in these situations. You know, asking themselves like, God, are you even here? It's time to show up. Right? Why are you even allowing this to happen? Don't you love me? And they're probably feeling vulnerable and threatened like we always do. Like they should either get in the fetal position to kind of absorb the blows that are coming or to lash out to preempt those blows like sometimes we like to do, right? So if we'd appreciate their terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, and see how God hints at a reversal in their story, though he remains completely hidden, then we'll have hope for our very own terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days and seasons, and how God is a God of the great reversal for his people. With that, why don't you grab your Bible? or the open up that Bible app on your phone that you can now get to because we have Wi-Fi here, right? So, and I want you to find your way to Esther chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. If you grab one of those, uh, if you grab your own Bible and you're kind of trying to find where Esther is, you'll probably open to the middle and that's Psalms. Just keep going to the left, you'll run into Job. Right after Job, you'll find Esther. If you reach for one of those blue Bibles, you're in luck. It's page 413. Now with that...
And the story open on your lap. Let's listen carefully as Daniel Bjornsson reads a portion of it for us this morning. Daniel. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. In front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace, and when the king saw king Esther, queen, queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given, given you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. This is the word of the Lord. I gotta take a little bit of drink. I'm fighting a cold here, so. Okay. Now remember, just before this, Esther called on all the Jewish people to pray and fast for three days for, so that she could have God's favor and help for what she is about to face. And after those three days, she has to take a deep breath and moves forward to initiate that conversation with the king that we just heard about. Don't underestimate how incredibly brave this is. Yes, she's the queen, but she's diving into the shark tank by going to the king unannounced because she's breaking with Persian protocol of only going to the king if she were summoned. And making matters worse, she's running, she's venturing into the unknown with him because she hasn't seen him for over a month, right? Not for a date night, not for a formal family check-in, not even a text. So who knows what kind of mood he's in, right? Who knows what he even thinks about her now? She has absolutely nothing, nothing to go on. And that is an added layer of danger on top of just how dangerous and capricious and crazy that this guy can be. This is her. Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, right? And that's why she does everything that she does and why she approaches it with the care that she does. Instead of diving into the deep end of this shark tank by simply making a request of the king to stop the genocide, she definitely does everything she can to kind of test the waters with the king. And so she takes you know, one step at a time into these waters until she can get to the deep end with that request of hers. Step one into the waters, she puts on all of her royal garb, and she approaches him with just all royal deference that she could possibly muster. And what does she discover there? God is already there, in fact, working and to woo the king to the point that she had, remember, favor in his sight. The thing that God alone does for those select heroes in the Jewish faith when they are in exile, something that only God does, she finds it. 
And so Esther offers all the royal deference that she could, acknowledging his kindness by touching that scepter that he had extended. So step two, a bit deeper into these waters, when the king asks her what she wants and promises incredible generosity to her, she makes a much smaller request than the full ask she actually wants to give. She invites the king and Haman to a private banquet that she's prepared, but only if it please the king. And what does she discover? God is already there, working and wooing the king in that favor, to the point that the king interrupts his day. How often do you and I like to do that? Interrupts his plans for the day. How often do you and I do that? And sets it aside so that he can go to this banquet with Haman and Esther. And then step three, a little bit deeper into the waters. Once Haman and the king and Esther are eating and drinking their fill at this private banquet, the king finally says, okay, Esther, okay, what do you really want from me? Because I'll be really generous with you. But instead of even making her request even at that point, uh, she decides to see if she can really does have God's favor or she's just dreaming it up. And so she invites the king and Haman to another banquet on the next day, but again, only if she has found favor. And what does she discover? God is again already there. He's already there working and wooing the king in favor for her, to the point that he even agrees to a more intentional interruption of his day, more intentional interruption of his plans by attending another banquet on the next day. So for all of the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day that Esther is in, God is in there too. He hasn't left her. And God is working to pull the strings, redirect things so as to orchestrate a revival, a, a reversal that is just kind of barely peeking out at this point in the story. That means what she thought was going down was actually going up by God's sovereign might. What she thought was heading south was really heading north because of God's providential maneuvers and pulling the strings that she could not even see. Now, I've been in Davis almost eight years now, and even though I consider myself as having a pretty good sense of direction, for some odd reason, I always struggle to figure out which way to go on I-80. When I'm in Vacaville or in Sacramento, does anyone else have this problem? Pity me, but humor me here then, right? I mean, I vividly remember one time I took one of my dogs to a specialized vet in Vacaville, and at this vet appointment, I had to get back on the highway to get back to Davis, right? Um, and so I was so sure I was heading back home. And I started seeing unfamiliar sights, right? But still, I was convinced. I was like, I am going in the right direction. Don't be misled, Steve. You know where you're going here. And then I saw signs for Oakland. And I realized this is not the right way. That kind of thing happens to me all the time on I-80, right? I'm so sure I'm headed in one direction, but the reality is I'm going in the complete opposite direction. That is what's happening to Esther in this scene. She may think she has a really good sense of direction about life and the way things are going to play out, and 
She may think that she's heading in one way with this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. But she's actually pointed in the reverse direction, and she doesn't even know it. So Esther's story, it's relaying something incredibly important for you and me about God. God is a God of the great reversal, even when he's hidden. We can feel like we're going south, right? But he's actually pointed us north and giving us peaks that were in that direction. Little signs that you're going to Oakland instead, right? We can sense that things are going to go down. This ship is going down and going down quickly. But ultimately, he's bringing us up, in fact, in spite of what we can see right now. And just in case that we, you know, you think this is a fluke. I mean, this is a kind of a nice exception to the way God operates with his people. We're immediately thrown into a Mordecai story right after this. And his horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. Right after this banquet, in fact, uh, we walk out with Haman from this banquet to his house. And Haman, he's feeling quite good about himself, thank you very much. He had just had a private banquet with the royal couple and another round coming up the next day. You know, this is, who wouldn't love this, right? But there's still this persistent pebble in his shoe of Mordecai's continued um, expressed disdain for him. In fact, right after this private banquet, Haman goes to the king's gate, and, and Mordecai doesn't even acknowledge his existence, right? His superior, he just, he just sat there, didn't look up, didn't tremble whatsoever, and that was the final straw for Haman. He goes home, he bemoans it to his family, and they give him the advice that they should build some massive gallows, and then ask the king to execute Mordecai on them the next morning, kind of as in assuming that this is a prelude to what the king has already given an edict to with the Jewish people. I mean, what could go wrong, right? And so with the gallows up, chapter 6 takes us, tells us that Haman goes into the palace complex to make that ask of the king. And some royal attendants grab Haman there and whisk him to the king. And before Haman can even make his ass, the king wants to ask him something. What should be done for someone whom the king wants to honor? And of course, Haman thinks, I'm finally getting myself here, right? I mean, getting my come ups. And that's what Haman thought. And so Haman recommends that the king dress the honoree in royal robes, not just backup ones, the, the ones the kings are actually wearing. Sit him on the mount that he's already going to be have, and then led through the city and with shouts of, this is what happens to the one that the king wants to honor. So Haman has to be sitting on pins and needles at this point, right? Waiting to be whisked off and treated like royalty, Except you and I are clued into something here. We're clued into a sleepless night that the king had had the previous night. And to cure his insomnia, he read over the royal records, which must be very boring, right? And he reads and just so happens upon Mordecai and the record of him foiling the assassination plot that the king had not properly recognized or rewarded. Whoops. And so Haman, 
is stunned to have the king direct Haman to make good on all of that stuff that he had just said, but to do it for his nemesis Mordecai. And what is even worse is that Haman has to be the one who dresses Mordecai in those royal robes. He has to be the one who leads the cult around the city saying, this is what God, the king does for a man that he wants to honor. This is a stunning, stunning reversal. Instead of being hung on those gallows as a prelude to the genocide coming to the Jewish people, Mordecai is rewarded for something that happened five years ago. This is the least likely thing to happen or even expect to happen in this story. This is like you and I getting an ominous letter from the IRS. You know, I always panic when I get those kinds of things. I think they're auditing me. They're asking me for more money. So would it be stunning? Wouldn't it be shocking to read, congratulations, we've made an error. Here's $10,000 that are right in your bank account. Right? Or this is like being called into the principal's office or our boss's office, right? And I always panic at that, right? I mean, believing I'm in deep trouble or getting some punishment for something that I didn't know about, right? Don't, don't you do that a little bit? A little bit of panic there? And so would it be a stunning and shocking reversal to walk in and not see them frowning but see them smiling, giving a congratulations for a reward, more time off. You don't have enough vacation right now. Right? You get a pass on the next project. You don't have to take finals this year. Right? That is what happens to Mordecai. He thinks he's going to be eviscerated in this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Especially when he's called in by, by the king and the likes of this king. But he's actually honored. He's treated like royalty. And again, we may be very skeptical of this and be like, Steve, you're just stringing a line some coincidences here for us. That's very nice, nice Bible trick there. But this is actually something so much more. It's so much more and so obviously so that even Haman's family observes it. After this whole thing goes on, they leave us with something to ponder at the close of this episode. They say this, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends, Everything that had happened to him. So leading Mordecai through, right? Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. These people who are far from God say, This is spiritual foreshadowing. This is the tip of an iceberg reversal for you, Haman. Why? Because God, God is a God of the great reversal. You see, the story and this episode of Esther and Mordecai, it doubles down to insist on something incredibly important that you and I tend to forget and that you and I need to internalize here, that God is a God of the great reversal. In fact, God is so powerful and so wise that he's even able to do this without having to resort to the miraculous. 
without having to burst onto the scenes in our life and say, ta-da! So for all the times that we feel like the hammer is going to fall on us for our flaws and our weaknesses and our sins, God is actually working and moving to lift up every Christian, even imperceptibly to us. Even if it only comes at the end of the age. For all the times that you and I fear that we're going to be gutted with this trial or this hardship, in actuality, God is operating and maneuvering to strengthen every follower of Jesus, even invisibly so, that we may only appreciate in hindsight. God is a God of the great reversal. That's just the kind of God that he is and the kind of God that we got into a relationship with through Jesus. In fact, Jesus told us this. He gave us fair warning, didn't he? I mean, Jesus said stuff like this. He said, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Want to get to the front of the line, Jesus says? Then go to the back of the line in obscurity and obey Jesus there. Why? God is a God of the great reversal. So the front of the line is actually in the back. Or this one, you know, Jesus said, you know, for everyone who humbles, exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He says, you know, you want to be promoted and held in high regard? Then promote others. Treat them with higher regard than yourself. Why? God is a God of the great reversal. And so high regard comes in deferring to others. Or what about this last one? Whoever loathes his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Want the most out of life, Jesus asks? Then die now and keep dying and giving yourself in devotion to God and in love to others. Why? God is the God of the great reversal. And so life is found in dying to yourself. You see, this is just the type of God that God is. The kind of God that we get into a relationship through Jesus. He's a God of the great reversal. That reversal may not be, you know, instantaneous or immediate. It may not turn out like we think it should or how we feel like it, we want it to. It may not even yet fully swallow up that terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day that we have going on right now. Yet, we still taste that reversal now. We still see glimmers of sunshine poking its way through those clouds, don't we? I mean, haven't you ever tasted this reversal just a bit? And even then, without God showing up to do the miraculous or showing up dramatically. I've had seasons where I've been in profound pain and just want to kind of curl up in the fetal position because that's how I tend to deal with stuff like that. Right? Pain from abandonment, desperation of an unknown future, of being blocked from what I think is normal in life. Have you ever experienced that? But haven't you also had this more keen sense of God being with you? Like your ears are more tuned to what he is saying. Just enough to take the next step to the point that you kind of miss that companionship when the pain has left. 
I have. And so there is always this strange taste in my mouth of the reversal of pain in feeling just a sense of blessing of God being there. I've also had times where I've noticed that I, that I feel like I'm giving up a lot to sacrifice for my family or my friends or the church, and no one seems to notice or care. I'm like, aren't you guys watching what's going on here? And the answer is no, of course not, right? And do you ever feel that way? But haven't you also had a sense of deep satisfaction in seeing others benefit? A strange sense that, like, life is better because you are adding value to their life. I have. And so there's this strange taste in my mouth of the reversal of emptying myself in feeling very full that I couldn't otherwise have if I had not done that. There are so many tastes of this reversal if we just notice it and how abnormal it actually is without God being in our life and working behind the scenes. Vulnerability becoming strength. Generosity turning to true wealth. Serving turning into influential leadership and the like because God is a God of the great reversal. And this story of Esther along with what Jesus says means that we taste this. There's hints of it in our life. This is just the tip of a full-blown reversal that God will bring. It will be the reversal of joy that will swallow up this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day in resurrection. And being among a people he renews to live in a world that he restores to the paradise he originally made it to be. And so the million-dollar question is, is then what do we do with this sense of God being the God of the great reversal? I mean, certainly, it means to take enough hope to just take enough step in the middle of today or in the middle of what may be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day because God can and God will bring a great reversal. It may not be immediate. It may not even be what we want. It may only happen at the end of the age when God makes everything right in his economy. But make no mistake here. God will reverse everything for people who have come to him in faith in Jesus. Meaning that we can take hope in the best of days and in those terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. So is there any hope you need to take this morning? Do you need to focus less on this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day and more on the reversal God is brewing right now to look for the peaks of it, the one that peaks to the fully formed future so that you can take the next faithful step. Maybe more broadly or tangentially, this means that we're able to focus on simply obeying God and letting him take care of the consequences. I mean, so often I find myself calculating what is going to happen if I obey God in this one area. And it always ends up shrinking me back from what I should fully do. Right? From self-identifying as a Christian, from giving generously from an unexpected raise or return, from speaking the truth with grace, from doing all the dirty work with a good heart and not complaining. 
Do you ever find yourself calculating like that? Like, if I do this, this is how I want it to work out. We don't need to concern ourselves with the calculations of what will happen or what won't happen, what backlash will come, because God will work secretly. He will speak silently to bring that reversal about for us on his terms and in his time. And so is there some area that you've been too heavily calculating the consequences that, you are, that it's shrinking you back from how you should fully obey God in that area? I mean, can you reset your heart on God's reversal that may actually be going on very quietly right now so that you can focus your efforts on what next steps you need to take in that area to obey God? You see, we may be where Alexander was, in the middle of a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Or we may happen upon one that is far worse and that extends into a much longer season than we'd want. Esther and Mordecai, they had theirs. And remember, Jesus had his at the cross. Dinah's shameful, undeserved death for us and our sin. And God, he's a God of the great reversal, which Esther and Mordecai tasted, but which Jesus fully tasted in a resurrection from the dead for our life. We just sang about it, didn't we? And that means if we come to faith in Jesus, trusting him to have died for us and rose for us, then he will come in and he will join us in this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And he will be working for his purposes and for our good. And eventually, we'll join him in God's reversal of a resurrection, even if God remains a little bit hidden right now. You see, God, God is a God of the great reversal. And so we can take hope. And we can focus simply on obeying without having to make all the other calculations of how it's going to turn out. So let's pray to that end, shall we? God, so often in life, I feel as if it all rides on me. My efforts and, and my intelligence and my gifts and my abilities, God, and maybe there's others who feel that way as well. And God, so often we feel like we have to manicure our life and make sure that it turns out the way we want it. But God, I pray that you would help us to take this position of humble trust in you so that we can do what you've called us to do, what, what is ours that you've given us to do, and that we would not hold back in any way and we would not damp down our hope but that simply you, we would have this way of just taking the next faithful step that you are calling us to make, that would honor you, that would help people, that your glory would be seen, even if it's just peaks of it right now. And so give us this kind of humble trust, we pray. In Jesus' name. church truly God is a God of great reversals and God is one we can trust to be faithful in every situation 
He's the one that speaks life into dead places and brings light into darknesses. So whatever it is you're going through, I want to assure you, you can trust in God. You can trust in God. And he will see you through to the other side. You see, one of the ways that we fellowship together as a church is sometimes we just get to hang out and have fun together with each other. And um, we're having one coming up very soon. Next, next week, Monday on May 29th, we'll be um, coming together for a Memorial Day picnic at Slide Hill Park. Woo! So um, come with your families. It's going to be a picnic. Um, invite your friends. You could invite a co-worker who you just want to hang out with also or a neighbor. And I, it will be a great time. Also, um, just like she, um, children are a blessing to any community, a blessing to any church, a blessing to any family, to the nation. In fact, they are the future. And so um, as a church, we are also interested and we love kids because we know God loves kids. Um, <laughs> so um, we're having our vacation Bible camp coming up from June 26th to June 29th. And if you're interested in this, to sign up your kids or you want to volunteer, please meet at the stop at the connect table on your way out and um, you have a chance to sign up. Okay? Right. Um, can we stand up as we receive this benediction together? May you be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ will dwell in your heart through faith. May you be rooted and grounded in love and be able to comprehend, to understand with all the church and all the saints, the height and the length, the depth and the breadth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. May you be filled with all the fullness of God. And as you go forth into your week, may the power of God walk in you and through you bringing life and light to everything around you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace, church.